Southern Foodways Alliance work wouldn't be possible without generous donors. Today we thank Maker's Mark, a family-owned distillery in Loretto, Kentucky, that still rotates barrels by hand and dips each bottle of bourbon in their signature red wax. It's the perfect bourbon for sipping on your porch in the cool of the evening. We're also grateful to longtime friends Lodge Cast Iron, a family-owned foundry in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. From Camp Dutch ovens to cast iron skillets and grill pans, Lodge makes the cookware that you need for your socially distanced dinner parties and camping vacations. I'm John T. Edge. And I'm Melissa Hall. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Amy Nezakumatatil is the author of four previous poetry collections, including Oceanic. She has been published in the Best American Poetry Series, New York Times Magazine, and just recently the fall issue of Gravy. The National Endowment for the Arts honored her with a poetry prize, and she received a pushcart prize, too. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She's on a roll. (laughs) I also have the pleasure of working across campus from Amy. She's a professor of English and creative writing in the University of Mississippi MFA program. Her brand new book, A Sumptuous Collection of Illustrated Nature Essays from Milkweed Editions, is World of Wonders in Praise of Fireflies, Whale Sharks, and Other Astonishments. John T. talked with Amy about how a closer look at nature can help shape a better future for the South. They went deep on corpse flowers, too. Corpse flowers and courtship. You'll, <laughs> you'll hear it. Listen for it. <laughs> This book offers us a novel way to regard the natural world. This book integrates everyday life and family history and natural history. World of Wonders offers a path, a prompt to see and think anew. And I'm deeply appreciative of the opportunity to talk with you today, Amy. Thank you. Yes, I'm so happy to be here. And uh, it just feels like it's 180 because I I wrote the bulk of these essays. It's my first book that I wrote the bulk of it um, and and edited everything right here in Oxford. So everything else that I've written up to this point was all over the country, but this is the one, the most Oxford of all the books. Well, you know, and here we are separated by a mile or two and and, and a pandemic. Um, But, um, (laughs) you know, and it seems to me that this moment of the pandemic, you know, I I think about all the sometimes um, fictitious stories about nature is returning. And um, but I do think about this moment in the way that we are turning our attention to nature in new ways. And I and I do think about your book as a pathway to that. I mean, is, is, am I reading too much in that, or is that part of your intent as you think about the way your book will land in this moment? Yeah, you know, I mean, of course, no one could have ever predicted this kind yeah. of situation. But I, but I do actually have, you know, a lot of times people say, "Oh, I'm so sorry, you're releasing a book in a pandemic," but then once they actually read it, they come back to me and say. Oh, Amy, it was just the thing, you know. Um, I needed mm-hmm. to feel good about something again, and they're they're short little bits. So, you know, many many people say they're having a hard time concentrating. So, the, these essays are short, illustrated essays, and I'm hoping that 
while we pay more attention to maybe what's right in front of us, our garden, or a new way of just looking at the trees a little bit more closely when we take our evening walks or something, I'm hoping that a little bit of that enthusiasm and a little bit of re-looking at the world um, serves as a reminder that really what's around us is is possibly some of the most wondrous um, uh, wondrous plants and animals we can find. Mm-hmm. And and you you know you don't anthropomorphize the, the your subjects, and yet you do set your subjects in motion across the field of vision in the field of for a reader. And I think about the way you describe the catalpa trees as protectors and the leaves with spit curls, not unlike a naughty boy from a 50s movie whose first drag race <laughs> ends in defeat and spill milkshakes. Like, I love that so much because you you are not rendering a flat landscape. You are rendering um, a landscape of great texture, um, alive with plants and animals that, that pull me forward. And, and I, I just admire that so much. Thank you so much. And, you know, I... It's funny, I, I chose plants and animals that people would maybe be familiar with. I know here in Mississippi, I mean, right here at the University of Mississippi, we have the champion catalpa, which is the <laughs> tallest catalpa in the state of Mississippi. And a lot of my students who'd been here, who'd been born here, they didn't know that. They've been walking past it. It's just right right outside the student union. And they never stopped to look at the little marker that mentions it, you know. Um, so I made sure to... Put that as a wonder, but also something maybe that they hadn't seen in person, like a narwhal or an axolotl, you know. But then there's also things, hopefully, that people will see that recognize, like a firefly, you know, um, a monarch butterfly. So I did that very purposely so that people don't feel, you know, intimidated with, like, oh, I haven't traveled around the world. I don't know these plants or animals. Again, I just wanted to reiterate that there's so much wonder right before our eyes, and then there's also so much more out there too. Um, <laughs> so, so that it doesn't take someone to have traveled extensively or you know um, to be super worldly, but it, it hopefully provides a training ground, a retraining to get our eye to appreciate a little bit more what's around us. One of the things that I took away from this book is that you leverage your family history to introduce us to the subjects of your book. And, and you beautifully do that with a passage about your mother and your family and about fireflies. And it, it reminded me of um, a poem I read by Ada Limon, where she refers yeah. to fireflies as field bling. And uh, I, it makes me ask, like, do poets, are poets especially drawn to fireflies? <laughs> Wait, what is there, what like is there it, for right? you there? <laughs> Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, I think there's, it's just, a, it's a natural subject in some ways, because, uh, and I am a big fan of Ada Limon's poetry. Um, yeah. But I think there's something so magical about fireflies. Um, and I don't want to speak for Ada, but for me, it takes me back to childhood and those times and those days that just felt so long in the best mm-hmm. ways, you know, um, where, I mean, honestly, it sounds ridiculous, but I could spend hours just kind of standing around in the in the driveway trying to catch fireflies um, mm. and not not even a minute be bored you know and and my my parents um and you know we didn't have this stuff growing up but 
my parents made sure that we were never beholden to electricity or anything with batteries for entertainment, you know? Um, and it's something that I try to install and still now with my own children, you know, um, to find their entertainment or to, to be able to be at peace without, oh, what's next on the news or what's next on this next video game or, you know, that kind of thing. So I think in some ways it's a reminder of simplest, simple fun and entertainment as a kid, you know, and those long, slow days. I don't know. You know, um, it was just a, such a magical time for me. And, you know, I use that word sim, simplistic. Um, um, one of the things I'm struck by is the ways in which you take this um, mass of knowledge that you acquired in writing this book and synthesize it in a way that certainly not simplistic, but it is approachable. And, you know, in your book, trees talk to each other and plants have a temperature and connect to fungal networks. Um, as you approach that, as you approach this kind of synthesizing of knowledge, um, what was your watchword? What, what were you trying to do um, in that kind of synthesization work? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, um, Annie Dillard said, the more we get to know about the planet and its inhabitants, the more, I think I'm butchering the quote a little bit, but <laughs> to, okay. to paraphrase, to paraphrase, she says, the more we get to know about the planet and its inhabitants, the less appetite we have for destruction. And I think mm -hmm. that's so true. Like the more we get to know about thinking of the way, um, birds, certain birds and um, amphibians look to the stars to find their way home, how could you not want to protect them? You know, you get to know a little bit about them. And I think the same is for other cultures. Once you get to know another culture, you don't fear them so much. You don't want to destroy them. It's not easy to destroy a land or a, a part of the forest once you know, oh, all these creatures that you know so much about live in that forest, you know. so. Um, and what is that phrase? I think it's a Southern phrase. Um, you catch more flies with honey, you know? <laughs> I, I I didn't want this to be very polemic or, mm -hmm. you know, gloom and doom, like you must do this or you must recycle or these butterflies will die or whatever, you know? Um, but rather look at the beauty and the marvelous of marvelousness of these creatures and plants. And then I, I bet you, I'm betting on it. I have to bet on it that humans might take another pause before they choose to use Roundup in their yard or before they um, toss that can into the street, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm hoping that they at least pause or reconsider their relationship and realize that we're all connected. And that's to plants, too. And the trees can, can help connect us as well. So that's my hope. That strikes me as a kind of forward-looking stance, and and that you know fits well with our overall theme this year that we're focused on the future of the South. Um, you know what? You know certainly climate change is a future tense and present tense problem we must address. Um, but setting that aside for a moment, what future? Um, can we better apprehend by way of paying attention to the plants and animals that populate your book? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. You know, I mean, 
it's hard. It's hard for me to say. I almost dare not dream it <laughs> out loud. But I am so hopeful for um, the goodness of people. I think mm-hmm. that hasn't been emphasized enough these last few years. There's so much doom and there's so much anger and rage, and, and in many cases, justifiably so. But I'm hopeful that people remember how to be kind to each other, how to be good to themselves and tender and vulnerable with each other. And one way we can start to do that is to, again, remember um, remember our childhoods when we all, you know, when some of our first, lang- first words when we spoke was the word, look, look, mama, look, dada, you know, um, look at the moon, look at that bird, look at that flower, you know. Um, and it's hard to be full of rage when you are ecstatic over something that you notice, you know. But more than yeah. that, I think a lot of the writing that has been done about the outdoors has been um, mainly white, mainly male. And I, mm-hmm. I think I'm kind of hopeful for a new future where um, different backgrounds and different abilities um, and different viewpoints of the outdoors are um, cherished and and look to future generations so that it's not just one type of person's view of the outdoors like i love thoreau i love john Muir, but boy i would have loved to have read more women more people mm-hmm. of color um writing about the outdoors um and i think that just benefits everybody not just brown folks but um white folks can stand to, to read about the outdoors written by um, people of color and, and different abilities, you know, and and maybe to ask ourselves, why isn't there more? You know, why aren't there more disability narratives of people outside? What can we do to make the outdoors more accessible for people? You know, that kind of thing. So I'm hopeful that these questions are being asked because when I, you know, and that's not that long ago, but in the 80s, they they were, I mean, you could be raked over the coals for daring to ask about this, you know? Um, Right. So I'm I'm very hopeful, and I and I'm also very hopeful that there's a lot of people out there who want that change, who want the outdoors to be accessible for a whole range of people. That this isn't just a privileged class activity, right. you know, to go wandering outside. Um, there's so many exciting organizations that bring um, kids from the inner city outside camping for an afternoon or for for an evening, you know, um, and that that stuff just wasn't around when I was little. So I'm very hopeful for the future. I um one of the things that struck me reading this wonderful book is your your love of and belief in Mississippi. Um there's a passage in which you speak of the tiny magnets in you that lined up and snapped to attention um because you were finally where you needed to be. What I, mean, I don't know, how did the natural world tell you that? I mean what what signs um, did you receive from the natural world to beyond the magnets um, to tell you this is where you're supposed to be? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, on a on a very um, immediate level, you know, I spent 15 years just south of Buffalo, New York, um, where I was indoors most of the time, and I put my time in with the snow and. You know, I mean, my toddlers would be buried up to their necks in snow. You know, um, we had those heavy lake effect snowfalls, and uh, and you know, that's that's not 
That's not what drew me here. Um, but when I first moved to Oxford, we were supposed to be here just for nine month um, fellowship. And we thought, well, we'll have our Southern adventure and then go back to, to normal life. But we moved into Oxford on a hundred degree day in August. And there was something, I don't, I could hear bird song. I, I, it's like, I could, I could smell the kudzu. I could be outside, even though it was hot. I just reveled in the, the relentless sunshine. I had loved it. And even something like driving down Jackson Avenue, which is not the most beautifully aesthetically pleasing <laughs> street. Um, it just felt so lively. I also was relieved to be in a town where I wasn't the only brown person anymore. Um, and I could, I could feel myself unclench and I could take a deep exhale. I didn't have to be asked. I will also tell you this, that I was never asked if these boys that accompany me were my own, you know, um, right. where I, in, in Western New York, I was mistaken for the nanny a couple times just in the grocery store. And, you know, my husband is white. Um, my kids uh, are mixed, um, but that just doesn't happen here in the South. And specifically in Mississippi, nobody asks me, what are you? That question that has plagued me since I can remember. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if it's a combination of manners or people have just talked about race relations here in a much more direct way than anywhere else in this country. But my sons also don't have to see me you know, at the grocery store, get asked, hey, excuse me, miss, what are you? You know, um, and right. they don't see me be othered. I can walk into a library or, you know, in the before times, walk into a restaurant and and people don't just stare at me. You know, people don't just um, come up and ask, oh, we had a bet. We were wondering if you were Aztec or not, you know. <laughs> and um, It wow. sounds silly in some ways, but I can't tell you how much I feel at home just even from that. And to see my kids play with a Vietnamese kid, a Muslim kid, a Latino um, kid, and have crushes on the same, you know, um, <laughs> where we didn't get that in, in Western New York, frankly. Um, and so I I know there's a, Oxford is not perfect and it has a long way to go, but I am very hopeful that this is a vibrant place that people want to do good and want to change for the better and to make it a place that that people of all backgrounds can can find a, a claim for home here as well you know i mean i know there's there's people who i don't know it's it's a strange thing to say about oxford you know but i i i believe in the goodness of the people and i have hope that they'll come around they'll come around the people who are or set in their ways, I think they will see that, you know, I always want to say, join us, join, join the future. The future <laughs> is a rainbow. You know, the future is, it's yeah. so good and, and, and vibrant. Um, so I, I have hope that it'll come around. It, it reminds me, you know, you're speaking very personally of the way you have embraced Mississippi and Mississippi has embraced you and your family. And, and it, it complements something I see and hear in the world of writing today too, so many black and brown writers, um, you know, including, you know, a friend of ours, Kiese Lehman, you know, who are mm -hmm. actively claiming the South, actively claiming mm -hmm. Mississippi, um, which is important. It is both liberating for those who claim um, the state and the South. It's also liberating for 
um, white people like me, because, you know, if we all claim this place, then we can together make a better place. Um, if we Absolutely. all dedicate ourselves to this place. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and I always say like, I, um, I don't know. I just, I don't look over my shoulder here in the way that I did in my small town in Western New York. And, uh, you know, if I'm alone in the parking lot at night, you know, and, um, I don't know. I just feel like what the media tells us is uh, about, about Mississippi, about the South is not always positive. And some of that is, of course, justified. Sure. But I wish, and, that, and that's on me as well. I, and I, I say this to my students all the time. I absolutely had a closed mind when I, when the first thing, you know, I heard when I was kind of Mississippi, I was like, Oh, I, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little scared, you know? Um, and it, I found that to be just the opposite. I mean, my whole writing life's project has been searching for home, and I found it, and of all places, Mississippi. I don't think I could have ever predicted that, you know. Mm. Um, and so I think I, I just want to shout about it. I just want to shout that, you know, the kind of the backwards things you see on the media is is one part. But it's just as backward in Western New York as it is, you know, in in Mississippi and uh, or it's in some some parts of, of Mississippi. And I just, you know, I I'm so happy to say that my mixed race family is a part of it too. And and um, you know, I, I'm I'm so proud of that. I'm so so proud of that for the future. Well, I want to ask you, please, if you would read um, the opening of the Firefly piece. Um, oh, sure. It'd be a great pairing with the recollections about your family and the possibilities of the open air. Yeah. You know, I wrote this a while ago and um, when I was looking at this over again, I just got the book in my hand not too long ago, just uh -huh. a few days ago. Um, but, you know, I haven't seen my folks since uh, January. So it, it destroys me a little bit um, reading this in the summer uh, it's different knowing that, you know, oh, usually in the summer, my, they're either here or my boys have been there um, several times already. And this is the first summer of my life where I haven't seen my folks. So it is, it's, uh, this book is also a good reminder for me to just, um, you know, to contemplate things and, and to, um, to slow down a little bit as well. But it does, there's parts that definitely make me a little sadder um, to recollect these times together. Um, so here we go. Here's Firefly. And the Latin name, I put the Latin name for all of these creatures and plants. Um, the Latin name for the Firefly is Photinus pyralis. When the first glimmer pop of Firefly light appears on a summer night, I always want to call my mother just to say hello. The bibliography of the Firefly is a tender and electric dress, a small flame sputtering in the ditches along the highway, and the elytra covering the hind wings of the firefly lift like a light leather, suppler than any other beetles. In flight, it is like a loud laugh, the kind that only appears in summer with the stink of meat sizzling somewhere down the street and the mouths of neighborhood children stained with popsicle juice and hinging open with the excitement of a ball game or tag. Beautiful. Thank you. And talk of stink, of course, takes us straight to corpse flowers. <laughs> yes. Good segue. Good segue. 
Um, I'm so intrigued by corpse flowers. I'd heard tell of them, um, but didn't understand much about them until I read your passage um, about them. Would you read a piece from there too? Um, I'm thinking about sure. the um, the part where you begin to explore the plant's temperature. Mm, okay, great. I can't get over the plant's temperature. When you touch the spadix of a corpse flower, it feels almost human, full of blood, and you might expect to feel your hand pulse at its heartbeat. Just last week, I read how trees speak to each other underground, how they let out warnings of toxins or deforestation. Trees have also been known to form alliances and friendships through fungal networks. All of these findings are still new, but I'm in love with the idea that plants have a temperature, that they can run warm and cold when they need to, that they can send signals to species who will help them, not harm them. And what a magnificent telegraph we might send back, especially if other humans have ever made you feel alone on this earth. Hmm. You use the word love here and your love for the corpse flower, but love also plays a role, a different kind of role in your relationship with the corpse flower and your husband. That's right. It's a, it's kind of, I wish I, you know, you can't almost make this stuff up, but <laughs> you know, um, really the, I mean, this is not the only reason why I ended up marrying my husband, but of one of the many, of one of the many, many is that he's really the, one of the only men who was never put off or scared or um, frightened by my knowledge of the plant and animal world <laughs> and specifically about the corpse flower. I mean, you know, as, as one does over a dinner date, um, uh, when once you you know, and we were dating really long distance, and um, you know when the the inevitable question of so what have you been doing this week? Well, my answers were usually you know oh I, I just came back from visiting this corpse flower or tracking this temperature on this corpse flower you know, and um, you know it was an easy way to separate the wheat from the chat wheat from the chaff. <laughs> um, you know you could tell about in an instant which guys were excited to hear about that or which guy's eyes started to glaze over who <laughs> would not be interested at all. And Dustin's eyes always sparkled and he not only sparkled, but genuinely wanted to know, took it upon himself to track down other corpse flowers blooming for me across the country, you know? And um, so it is just, it's one, and, and, you know, I write about this in the book and we went tracking them together, you know? So it is very funny. That is not the only reason um, why I ended up marrying him, but it's because he just never flinched. And I, and to this day, he is, we're both writers. We both teach here at the University of Mississippi. Um, and it is a lot for, I think, two artists, two, two writers in particular who write in the same genre, even. Um, it's, it's a rare, it shouldn't be rare, but I think it's a rare thing to have and especially when there's different um, ethnic backgrounds, to frankly have a, a white man say, hey, I want you to shine and I'm going to do everything I can mm -hmm. for our family to make sure the, the kids are not running feral while you go off and do your um, reading here or visit this school. And now I'm not traveling, but he's still, I mean, we, we very much 
uh, both. I I hope he he would be able to say the same for me. But um, I wouldn't have it any other way. Where we're both the other person's biggest fan, and so that's just been so such a, a a big blessing in our lives that we can say, "Hey, did you read this New Yorker article together?" and and disagree, and you know, and have these really exciting conversations. And again, kind of not be bored and not need electricity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's just the greatest conversationalist. And um, our early conversations were about the corpse flower. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's inspiring to me, too, as I think about the future, because that's another kind of future, a, a different kind of gendered future in which, um, you know, you march off in, into um, the future together as peers, as curious yeah. peers, bringing home information and insights and and making a life together. And that for a fellow resident of Mississippi and Oxford um, is a hopeful thing to know and to mm-hmm. um, for all of us. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And, and, more, and more than that, too, now that I'm a mom who's raising two boys. I think it's just, it's so important that they see, you know, oh, daddy's, you know, help doing everything he can to help mommy um, and make sure mommy gets her art time or her writing time. And, and also mommy's also doing everything she can to make sure daddy is, is feeling okay and getting some writing time in. And that is absolutely, no matter if my, if my boys end up with a partner or not, I want them to see but that's how you be someone's good friend and, and a life yeah. partner is that you help each other out. And, it's, you know, um, and anyway, so I, I, I just think that that I hope I, I fail many times, but I hope ultimately that's what they come away with is that mom and daddy were a team um, on the years that they publish and the years where they, nothing is coming, you know, um, but no matter what, we were a team. Well, as, as a, resident of Oxford and a believer in Oxford and a believer in the the literary future of Oxford. We're so happy to have y'all um, as a part of this conversation. And I'm so pleased to have had the chance to spend time with you today talking about your beautiful book, The World of Wonders, and about the futures that one can glimpse by reading that book. So thank you, Amy, thank so you. much. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you. Matt Pearl produced this episode. And we thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music and managing editor for Gravy and other SFA media, all other SFA media, Sarah Kent Milam. We thank her. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. Visit SFA at southernfoodways.org to watch our Ruth Fertel Keeper of the Flame film about the life and work of Hanan Shabazz. The pride of Asheville, North Carolina. While you're there, please consider making a donation to the SFA or becoming a member if you're not already a member. Your dollars help us make gravy. They fund our work and we need them. We want them. We thank you for those dollars. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm John T. Edge. Thanks for letting us pour some gravy in your ear. Gurgle, gurgle, gurgle. Gurgle.